Turn with me, please, in your Bible to Acts chapter 5. This morning we'll be looking at Gamaliel's counsel, beginning in verse 33. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. And he was slain, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, after this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. And so in this present case, I say to you, to stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may be even found fighting against God. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The Sanhedrin of Israel was faced with uh, a problem with these men, Peter, John, James, the other apostles, claiming that the man who had recently been executed by the Romans, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Messiah of Israel. Now this claim by the disciples that Jesus was the Messiah was indeed troubling to the Jewish leadership, but I want to point out that it was not unique or new. There had been a, an epidemic of messiahs during this time in Israel's history as the people were convinced by the prophecy of Daniel that the time had come for God to set up his eternal kingdom. In Daniel's prophecy, we read, in the days of these kings meaning the kings of the fourth empire of which Daniel had prophesied. In other words, the kings of the Roman Empire that was in power at this time. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Now I know there are many people today who believe that those words have not yet been fulfilled. And I lived even as a believer during the time when Spain became the 10th member of the European community. And there were many Christian pastors and prophecy mongers who proclaimed that the end was nigh because Rome had been rejuvenated in the European Union. I think there are now 27, maybe we should say 26 and a half, members of the European Union. And that entire school of prophecy has been brought to naught. But the people who lived in the days of what is known as the Second Temple, the days of Jesus and then of the Apostles, were very well knowledgeable of the prophecy of Daniel. 
And they knew that that fourth empire, that fourth monster of the earth, was Rome. And that in the days of the emperors of Rome would come the kingdom that would never be destroyed. And so there was a great and pervasive expectation for the Messiah to come. There was an anticipation. And on top of that anticipation came a multitude of messiahs. From the death of Herod the Great to the final destruction of Jerusalem after the Second Jewish War, there, were, there was, as I said, an epidemic of messiahs. Josephus, the Jewish historian who fought in the first <coughs> Jewish war and then became a patron or a historian for Vespasian, he alludes to a great many of messiahs that arose during that time, although he only mentions a few. The Gamaliel here only mentions two, Thutis and Judas of Galilee. Thutis is believed to have, to have uh, initiated a rebellion, taking on the mantle of the Messiah of Israel immediately after the death of Herod the Great. In that political vacuum that occurred after the death of a powerful leader, Judas of Galilee is credited with being the founder of the Zealots, one of whom was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so these two are men that, be, that viewed themselves as Israel's Messiah. Now, our understanding of the Messiah makes us think that these men must have been heretics. Our understanding of the Messiah comes from our knowledge of Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Son of God. But understanding that the Messiah of Israel would be the Son of God and Himself God was not fully known by the Jews of this time. And so proclaiming oneself to be the Messiah was not the same as proclaiming oneself to be God. In, in other words, while Jesus was alive, the leaders of Israel would have handled Him <laughs> proclaiming Himself to be the Messiah. It was not for that reason that they took up stones with which to stone him, but rather that he made himself equal to God. And so let us not prematurely judge Thutis and Judas and the many, many others, but rather recognize that, that what Jesus <coughs> proclaimed himself to be, and especially what his disciples proclaimed Jesus to be, was nothing new. He was one among many. And so, what is it about Jesus that makes him the true Messiah, as opposed to the many who had arisen, and as Gamaliel reminds the council, who were killed and their followers scattered? One Jewish historian writing in the 19th century speaks of the attitude of the people of Israel in this day. He says, this ardent longing for the Messiah and the belief in his advent swayed all classes of the Judean nation, excepting the aristocracy and those who clung to Rome. During that short space of 30 years after Herod's death, a great number of enthusiastic mystics appeared who assumed the character of prophet or messiah and found disciples who followed their banner faithfully unto death. Well, that's the gist of Gamaliel's argument. That there were many who took upon themselves the mantle of Messiah, 
who drew, in one case, 400 men. Now, this is just a handful of disciples. Bethudas had 400 men who followed after him. Bethudas was killed. And those 400 men, many of whom were killed, the rest were scattered, many of whom were crucified by the Romans. Later, Gamaliel mentions Judas, probably because of, of his uh, association with the zealots, who were very powerful yet, and would eventually bring the Roman army down upon Jerusalem in AD 70. But this Judas drew to himself many people, but he too perished. And his followers were scattered. And his messiahship came to nothing. So this is Gamaliel's wisdom. And, and many people, and probably even yourself, reading this, have, have considered Gamaliel to be a wise man. But there's a problem with his logic. Jesus is already dead. Right? And, and yet his followers haven't scattered. Now, now maybe this was because I was in debate in high school, but if I were a Sadducee, you see, you see, I would have said, no, no, wait a minute, Gamaliel, your, your logic fails. You're mentioning as examples men who lived and drew men after themselves and then who died and those men were scattered and their, and their, and their whole movement came to nothing. But this man's already dead. And yet these men haven't scattered. We have threatened them. We have told them, commanded them not to preach in this name of, as far as we're concerned, a dead man. A dead Messiah. Now I don't know if we understand the inconsistency of that phrase. A dead Messiah. Why, Gamaliel, are we still dealing with these men? By your own logic, should they not have already scattered? But they haven't. You see, I don't know whether these men really thought about what Gamaliel was saying. I'm actually led to believe that what we're witnessing here is actually a political play within the Sanhedrin. Now, I have some biblical evidence to bring to that that I'll bring in a few moments. But although Gamaliel's counsel has almost universally been used, viewed as wise, and even many in the early church accorded Gamaliel himself with salvation, on the basis of this speech, there are many writers from the first centuries of Christianity who believe Gamaliel to have been himself a believer. Well, there is no evidence of that in the text, nor is there any evidence historically. Gamaliel was a Pharisee with pedigree. Gamaliel, like Annas, <coughs> mentioned last week, was the leader of the Pharisees as Annas was of the Sadducees. Gamaliel was one of the few people who was called Nasi, the name meaning prince. He was also called Hazachem, the elder. He became later the president of the Sanhedrin. And his descendants to the fifth generation would be themselves presidents successively of the Sanhedrin. And as the text says, he was respected by all the people. And he was treated 
remarkably well by history. So Gamaliel is one of those people that everybody looks up to even now. And that's why many Christian commentators have looked at this passage and said, yes, this is sound wisdom. In fact, Gamaliel saves the apostles. Well, I'm always very reluctant to give credit to man when credit is due to God. Gamaliel, to, to give away the punchline of the sermon, saved the Pharisees, not the apostles. Because there was an underlying argument that had been going on between the Sadducees and the Pharisees for several generations. And that argument hinged upon something called the resurrection. Something that these men, who Gamaliel may have thought were no just unlettered bumpkins from Galilee. But these men were advocating the very doctrine that differentiated between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The resurrection. And so on hearing this, and knowing that the Sadducees wanted nothing more than to silence these pesky disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, Gamaliel had to stand up in defense of a doctrine upon which his entire sect was founded. In other words, in this instance and in another that we'll read about in a moment, the Pharisees had more in common with the disciples of Jesus than they did with their cohorts, the Sadducees. And to yield ground on this point would be to establish a precedent that would do great damage to the Pharisees in the future. Did Gamaliel's counsel save the apostles? Well, in one sense, yes. In the sense that it prevented the Sadducees from immediately tearing the disciples apart, yes. But the Sanhedrin did administer the 40 minus 1, the flogging that was the punishment granted to them by the Romans in place of capital punishment. By the way, the Sanhedrin retained the right and authority of capital punishment in one instance and one only, and that is if a Gentile, even a Roman, ventured from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the people of the temple. If even a Roman citizen did that, the Jewish Sanhedrin had the right to execute them immediately by stoning. But on all other offenses, they had been forbidden capital punishment and granted what was considered just short of killing a man, and that was 39 lashes. Okay? Now, historians tell us that this was administered actually with 13 strokes of a triple-corded lash or whip into which leather straps was woven bits of rock. This was often fatal. Okay? This often led to the death. If you can envision and imagine 39 strokes ripping at one's back, often to the bone. So did Gamaliel save the apostles? Well, if that's salvation, I might try my luck with someone else. The Sanhedrin still punished very severely the apostles. But if we analyze further the wisdom of Gamaliel, 
I think we're going to see the weakness of it. First of all, I've already mentioned his analogies just don't work. In mentioning Thunus and Judas, he has everything backwards. He has their cause arising from their life, their followers gathering to them, and then comes their death and the scattering. And as I mentioned, well, this particular Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, we've already killed. And yet his followers have not scattered. Also, his mention of the fate of Thutis and Judas of Galilee merely reminds the Sanhedrin of the very sort of intervention by the Romans that they want to avoid. And think about it. The Sanhedrin held their power by the grace, as it were, of Rome. And we even read earlier, Caiaphas, the high priest, telling the council, if we don't do something here, he says, you guys know nothing. If we don't do something here, the Romans will come in and take away both our position and our nation. And yet here's Gamaliel saying, leave them alone. The Romans will deal with them. We don't want the Romans to deal with them. Because when the Romans dealt with things, they kind of did it with a big gun. And not only did they destroy the, the, the troublemakers, they tended to destroy the whole structure of autonomy that they had granted. And they bring in even more oppression. The Romans didn't do anything with a light hand. Okay? So if you think about what Gamaliel is saying, you think, oh, I don't think I like that solution. I think, you know what? There's only 12 of them. We could kill them. The Romans wouldn't care because they're Jews. And it would be done, and we'd never have to bother the Romans. So, you know, I think Gamaliel's argument also has a fallacy, both historically and theologically. See, what Gamaliel is saying is that if God is not in something, a movement, an action, then it will always fail. But that's not true. In fact, we have an entire psalm, Psalm 73, that talks about the success of the wicked. Do we not? That the ventures of the wicked often prevail on this earth. And God does not immediately intervene to shut them down. And conversely, we also know of believers and of actions and, and, and movements among God's people that have failed. Was not Josiah a godly king? Did he not follow after God, it says, as his father David did? And, and so Josiah rides out to war against Pharaoh Necho. Oh, surely, according to Gamaliel's counsel, this is going to be a successful venture. But was it? No, Josiah died, and his troops were defeated. Okay, so Gamaliel, what's What's the problem here? Well, I would submit to you that Gamaliel's counsel was more political than it was religious. He was blocking the Sadducees in their attempt to silence those who in the doctrine of the resurrection were actually closer to the Pharisees. One commentator writes, the apostles were suffering under Sadducean influence for the very doctrine which the Pharisees maintained as their distinguishing characteristic. In other words, Gamaliel listened to 
the teaching of Peter, of John, of James. He knew what they were saying. He, he heard what Peter said in front of the council. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. And it was at this that the Sadducees were incensed. Literally, they were enraged, infuriated. They were, they were made ready to kill. But Gamaliel heard the resurrection. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute, guys. Let's not be hasty here. Let's not rush to judgment here. Now, before you think this is just my interpretation, listen to another person standing before the same Sanhedrin, perhaps even many of the same men. Paul, recorded in Acts chapter 23. But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisee, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is one of my favorite visual passages in Scripture. And the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Good move, Paul. Throw the resurrection bone into the pool of Sanhedrin Karana and just watch the waters. Watch them attack each other. Because this was such a sorry, bone of contention that it could not be brought up without controversy. In other words, Gamaliel could not, as a Pharisee, as the leader of the Pharisees, he could not allow the Sadducees this victory. He could not allow them to condemn to death men whose crime was preaching and teaching the resurrection from the dead. Now, this issue about whether or not Jesus himself was resurrected would be one that, have, that would have to torment Pharisees like Gamaliel or another Pharisee who was a student of Gamaliel whose name was Saul who would later be called Paul whom we read about in chapter 23. Now, now it was the practice of the Jewish schools that the students would attend to their rabbi at all times. We see that in the case of Jesus. His disciples traveled with him, ate with him, slept in the same place. They left their occupations and their families, and they attached themselves to their rabbi, and they were with him at all times. So where was Saul? In this little event about which we read before the Sanhedrin, where was Saul of Tarsus? I would submit to you he was right there. We'll talk about him in a moment. So, Gamaliel's counsel was not really uh, a, an ironclad argument. The power of that counsel was that the leader of the Pharisees united the Pharisees behind him and defeated the move of the Sadducees. Thus, in a sense, by God's grace, preserving the lives of the apostles. Though they did not care so much for the apostles, 
or for their presumed innocence. By the way, innocent until proven guilty was not a jurisprudent doctrine of the ancient world. But they were not so fond of the apostles that they would step in and prevent them from receiving the 40 lashes minus one. So let's be careful before we praise Gamaliel too highly, and certainly before we elevate him to the rank of Christian. But let's go back to the issue that he does raise. And what I talked about in the beginning of this sermon, and that is that there was such an ardent expectation in Second Temple Judea for the Messiah that it was not hard for a man to draw others to himself and to proclaim himself and to be proclaimed as Messiah. Therefore, was Jesus a plausible Messiah? Let, let's look at the issue that these men in the Sanhedrin, particularly the Pharisees, particularly Saul, would have to face. They would recognize the fact that this man was already dead. And as I said by Gamaliel's logic, this proved that he could not be the Messiah. And then here are these men preaching and teaching, and as we read at the end of this chapter, continuing to preach and teach every day, Jesus as the Christ. Messiah. Was he a plausible Messiah? Well, I would submit to you that if not for the resurrection, the answer is no. There were many variations on what the Messiah was expected to be. There was a universal belief that the Messiah would come. And there were some consistent expectations, for instance, that he would be of the house and lineage of David. But that was universally held. But what the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do was very much uh, a multitude of different views with some consistent characteristics. Fundamentally, what the Messiah would do would be to accomplish Israel's return from exile. Now we say, well, they've already been returned from exile. They were in Babylon for, for 70 years, and, and then they came home and they were returned. But they didn't think so. And their writings are full of Exodus-type language, expecting one to arise from their midst and finally return the nation from exile. What did that mean? Well, it meant bringing back all of Israel's children from the scattered nations, the diaspora, would come back to the land. But even more than that, it would mean victory over Israel's pagan enemies, in this case, Rome. It would mean rebuilding the temple. You think, well, the, the temple's right there. No, that was Herod's temple. Herod was building that. Why was Herod building that? Because Herod wanted to be proclaimed as Israel's Messiah. The Jews didn't buy it. Herod was an Idumean, meaning part of his heritage was from Esau, Jacob's brother. Herod could not be the Messiah, but he was building the temple. And, and it's in all or most of the Messianic writings that the Messiah, when he comes, will cleanse the temple. 
that pure worship of Jehovah could resume. And finally, he would establish the immortal reign of the Davidic dynasty. He would establish that kingdom that we read about in Daniel that would never end. But that kingdom had to be David's kingdom. Son of David became synonymous with Israel's Messiah. And so there's this expectation that the Messiah would come, defeat Israel's enemies, cleanse the temple, and establish the Davidic monarchy that would rule the world forever. A messianic movement without a physically present Messiah posed something of an anomaly. These disciples' claims that Jesus, the dead man, was the Messiah of Israel posed something of a problem with their argument. It is very hard for a dead man to defeat Roman legions. So was Jesus a plausible Messiah? Well, the answer of the disciples was what Peter said. The God of our fathers has raised up Jesus. Earlier in his first sermon, Peter says to the assembled crowds, This man, Jesus, whom you killed, God has raised up, declaring him to be both Lord, that's the Davidic monarch, and Christ. Without the resurrection, there is no Messiah. Without a physically alive Messiah, there is no Messiah. And so the heart of the gospel, as preached by the early church, the indispensable element of the entire equation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not a movement, as so many modern scholars have said, this is not a movement in memory of a great teacher. This is not a movement that remembered a man who, who gave them the truth of God and for it suffered death, but is still dead. Dead messiahs don't gather anybody to themselves. Dead messiahs do not conquer Israel's enemies. Dead messiahs do not rebuild the temple. Dead messiahs have no good news for anyone. And so the essence of the gospel preaching is the God of our fathers has raised up Jesus. I'm not an advocate of the church honoring or celebrating any day, any holiday for which we are not commanded in Scripture to do. But if I had to choose between the two popular Christian holidays as to their significance between Christmas honoring the birth of Jesus and Easter honoring the resurrection, it's Easter. It's the resurrection. Because, folks, without the resurrection, as Paul says, there is no hope. We are all men most to be pitied. Why? Because our Messiah is dead, folks. And still in the grave. The man that we believe is not only the hope of the world, but of our own eternal salvation, is still moldering in the grave. But he's not. And that's the good news. That's the heart of the gospel that, preached, that was preached by Peter and later by Paul. The victory would be over Israel's and man's true enemy, 
You see, the people of Israel thought their enemy was Rome. Before that, they thought their enemy was Greece. Before that, they thought it was, was the Medo-Persian Empire or the Babylonians or the Assyrians. You see, we always think our enemy is of flesh and blood, right? Whatever is our opponent, whether it's the Soviet Union for many of us or maybe North Korea. And folks, let me, your younger folks, let me tell you, North Korea is nothing like the Soviet Union. The threat posed by North Korea is nothing like the threat posed by the Soviet Union. But the threat posed by the Soviet Union is nothing like the threat posed by Satan. He is the enemy of Israel. He is the strong man who must be bound that his house may be plundered. He is the one who has held mankind under the thrall of sin and darkness, who must be defeated that the kingdom of light might enter the world and grow and never be destroyed. That's the enemy that the Messiah would come to, de to destroy. The temple. Jesus said, tear down this temple, this building, and I will rebuild it in three days. And he was speaking, we are told, of the temple of his body. Later, Peter, who was right there listening, said that this temple is a spiritual habitation and we are living stones being fashioned and formed and placed into this spiritual temple. This is the temple that the true Messiah would build. The kingdom would not just be the Davidic monarchy in Jerusalem, but it would be the kingdom of God, which would overspread the entire world. The prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 of that small stone cut from the mountains without hands and crushed that idol, that statue of the world empires, and itself grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. That's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of light, as opposed to the kingdom of darkness. So is Jesus a plausible Messiah? He most certainly is. Because he has defeated the true enemy of Israel and of mankind. He has laid the foundation and begun building the temple of God, and continues to do so. And his kingdom has grown and continues to grow and will never be defeated. But without the resurrection, he's a dead Messiah. So whenever you hear some wise, modern Christian scholar telling us that the resurrection is a myth, telling us that the resurrection is not essential to the message of Christianity, you tell them, that without the resurrection, our Messiah is dead and our hope is gone. And you might as well all just shut up and go home. So what about Saul? Where was Saul? Well, I personally believe by the nature of being a student of a rabbi, Saul was right here. He may have even been recording the words of his master, Gamaliel. He was writing these things down. And I would say that as a Pharisee, both he and Gamaliel could not simply dismiss the apostles' claims regarding this resurrection. And I'll borrow a contemporary phrase that if a Pharisee rejected the resurrection, he would be a, a pino. He would be a Pharisee in name only. He would no longer be a Pharisee if he rejected the resurrection. And if you hold to the resurrection, then you must hold to the possibility of someone being resurrected. 
And so I believe that this was the beginning of those goads against which Saul of Tarsus was kicking when God laid him low on the road to Damascus. The Lord said to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It is hard for you to kick against those spurs that I am putting into your side, convincing you with each one of these examples. Even Gamaliel's speech later, Stephen, we know that Saul was there listening to that. These were goads. And Saul was listening. What did he think? Well, we know that many of the priests, many of the Pharisees, would come to understand that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. The witness of the apostles to the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth stuck in Saul's ears. This was a resurrection story. Saul himself would fight and kick, we're told. He would find himself, in Gamaliel's words, fighting against God. Until he too would be conquered by grace. And what would be said to his message after that? To Paul's preaching? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. As it must be central to all preaching, all true preaching of the gospel forever. Until his return. Jesus Christ, God, the God of our fathers, has raised him up. That he might be both a prince and a savior. Let us pray. Father, we cannot praise you or thank you enough for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge, Father, that it does not hold as central a place in our thinking as it should. Knowing as we do from your word and even from common sense that a dead Messiah offers no hope. That without the resurrection we are without hope and of all men most to be pitied. But we know the resurrection to be true. We know that you have raised up Jesus, your eternal Son, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and the Son of David. You have seated him at your right hand and given him authority over heaven and earth and over all souls, including our own. And we acknowledge him as Lord and Christ, as Prince and Savior. We praise you through him. And Father, we pray that this truth of the resurrection might always be a pillar of your church. That it might be an indispensable doctrine that no manner of scholarship would ever bring down. For we know that it upholds the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ. And without it, the gospel must fall. We thank you, Father, that we have a living Messiah. A living King. The Son of David. Who is building his temple and establishing his kingdom. And Father, we pray and ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, it might continue to grow to your glory, to the exaltation of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand this morning for the benediction from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Roman Church. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, 
according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Amen.